5. At every stage of the doing, but not many, it is rather the achievement of our end, the lust of finishing, which carries us through the tiresome details of our work. The child must therefore be early introduced to the joy of accomplishment, instead of unending toys, give him something to work with, he will appreciate your thoughtfulness, and he will find not only joy but real development in their use. At first the child's work will consist of fragmentary efforts, but at a remarkably early age he will show evidence of a power of concentration and persistence which will make possible the accomplishment of finished undertakings. He begins to know what he wants to do and to exhibit considerable ingenuity in finding and combining materials. Most of all, he wants to imitate the activities he sees around him. In the strain of modern life a widespread restlessness seems to have seized mankind. Whatever people do, they want to be doing something else. And the pathway of the average individual is strewn with crude beginnings, half-finished jobs, abandoned work. The child very easily falls into a line with this tendency of his elders. Hence he needs definite encouragement to see clearly what he has in hand and to bring his industrial attempts to a worthwhile conclusion. Avoid, even with a little child, that inconsiderate habit of grown UPS of calling the little worker away whenever you desire his attention or help quite regardless of the damage you may do to his work by your untimely interruption. Keep the child, as far as possible, too, from undertaking tasks too difficult or requiring too much time for completion. Discourage aimless handling of tools. A cheerful, what are you making? Sometimes crystallizes hither to a rambling desires. A timely suggestion often meets with enthusiastic response. Illustration, photograph by Brown Bros. Helping in the home tasks. Wisely directed activity will teach the child both in selfishness and industry the working outfit of a child under school age may or may not include kindergarten or Montessori material, balls, blocks, pencils and paper, paste, colored crayons, scissors, a blackboard, a cart, a wheelbarrow, stout little garden tools, a sand tray or, better, in summer an outdoor sand pile, will furnish endless work and endless delight to a child or group of children. It is not so much what sort of material we use as the way in which we use it. Even at this age the child longs to be a producer, to make things, and his best development requires that we train this inclination. There is a prevalent notion that women especially are no longer required to be producers and that all our energies should be bent toward the sole task of making them intelligent consumers. Their island however, a joy in producing without which no life is really complete and no scheme of education can be a true success which ignores or neglects the necessity of producing. The joy of work, the delight in achievement, should be the keynote of all industrial training. This should be kept constantly in view. To most people there is something wonderfully appealing about the innocence of the little child. We watch with delight the marvelous development of the little mind keeping pace with the growth of bodily strength and dexterity. We are reluctant to see the day drawing near when the child must begin his long course of training in school. Sometimes we fail to recognize the fact that before school days come the child has already received a considerable part of his education, that the habits which will make or mar his future are often firmly implanted and in a fair way to become masters of the young life. An elaborate plan for the little child's training would probably be abandoned even if undertaken, since elaborate plans involve endless work. If, however, We attempt no more than I have outlined in this chapter. We have some reasonable chance of success, given good health, with regular bodily habits, as a physical foundation. The child will have had much done for him if we have begun to build the habits of sympathy, self-control, industry, 
and service which will purify and sweeten the family relations of later years and make the one-time child worthy himself to undertake the important task of home building. It is naturally a matter for regret that the teacher into whose hands the child comes first at school usually knows so little of the home training he has had or failed to have. Children whose parents have made little or no attempt to teach these fundamental qualities which we have had under discussion are sometimes forever handicapped unless the teacher can supply the deficiency. Children who have made a good beginning may lose much of what they have been taught unless the teacher recognizes and holds them to the ideal. The kindergarten or primary teacher needs to know the homes of her pupils, and the time is not far distant when the school will recognize the home as after all the first grade in school life. Then mothers will receive the inspiration of contact with the teachers and their ideals, not alone when their children reach school age, but from the time the first child arrives in the home. The Sunday school has its cradle role. The day school may emulate its example. Footnotes, Chapter VII Teaching the Mechanics of Housekeeping Going to School Marks an Epoch in Every Child's Life. Hitherto, however wide or narrow the child's contact with the world has been, the mother has been, at least nominally and in most cases actually, the controlling power. Now she gives her child over for an increasingly large part of every day to outside influence. More and more we are coming to see that the evolution of a successful homemaker requires that the school as well as the home keep the homemaking ideal before it. And so the best schools of the country are doing. The greatest needs of the little girl's early school days would seem to be a definite understanding between teacher and mother of the share each should assume in the homemaking training. This necessitates personal conferences or mother's meetings, or both. The little girl of primary school age points the way for both teacher and mother by her adaptation and imitation of home activities in her play. In primary grades girls are approaching the height of the doll interest, which Hall and others place at eight or nine years. A doll's house, therefore, may be made the source of almost infinite enjoyment and profit in these grades. Indeed it is hardly too much to say that no primary room is complete without one, nor is there any reason why any school should remain without one since its making is the simplest of processes, four wooden boxes, of the same size, obtained probably from the grocer, the dry goods merchant, or the local shoe dealer, will make a most satisfactory house if placed into tiers of two each, with the open sides toward the front, this gives four rooms, which may be furnished as kitchen, dining room, living room, and bedroom, windows may be cut in the ends or back, If the boys of the school are sufficiently expert with tools or if outside assistance can be secured for an hour or so, the best results with the doll's house are obtained if the children are allowed to furnish it themselves, with the teacher's advice and help, rather than to find it completely equipped and therefore merely a plaything of the sort that children have less use for because they can do little with it. An empty house presents exciting possibilities, and perhaps for the first time these little girls look with seeing eyes at the home furnishings for they have wallpaper to select, curtains and rugs to make, and indeed no end of things to do. It is perhaps scarcely necessary to call to mind the educational advantages possible in the planning and making of bedding, draperies, table linen, towels, couches and pillows, window seats, and other furnishings, as well as in the ingenuity brought into play in evolving kitchen utensils and in stocking the cupboards with the necessities for housekeeping. The free interchange of ideas should be encouraged, and the spirit of seeking the best fostered. The conspicuous results in this work are too, we secure the child's attention to details of housekeeping, and we build up a foundation ideal of what housekeeping equipment should be. 
children in poorly equipped homes may find the most practical of training in this way. My experience has been that teachers have only to begin this work in order to arouse enthusiasm in any class of little girls. Once begun, it carries itself along. There should be no compulsion in this work. Choice and not necessity must be the rule in all our training for homemaking. To compel a child's attention to that which she will later do voluntarily, if at all, will at the very outset defeat our purpose. Illustration, making furniture for a doll's house affords educational advantages in emphasizing the details of housekeeping. The finest sort of cooperation arises in this work when parents are led to provide the little girl at home with a doll's house fashioned like the one at school. Perhaps they may go a step farther and find space for a larger scheme of housekeeping, in the attic or elsewhere. Cooperation among the children means interchange of ideas, materials, and labor, most helpful to social ideals. From the furnishing of the doll's house it is easy to pass to plays involving the activities of home life. Children delight in sweeping, dusting, washing dishes, arranging cupboards and pantries, and making beds in their miniature houses. And if their efforts are wisely directed, orderly habits easily begin to form. In all these varieties of work the children must be led to feel that there is a right way, and that only that way is good enough, even for play. The great result of all play housekeeping is the formation of ideals. It is just as easy to learn at seven or eight the most efficient way of washing dishes as it is to defer that knowledge until years of inefficient work harden into inefficient habits. The teacher will find abundant and interesting studies in household efficiency in recently published books to inspire her guidance of the children's activity. The step from washing play dishes at school to washing real dishes at home is easily taken, and children are delighted to take it. Here again the school and home may indeed must, for best results work together. Some schools are giving school credit for homework along domestic lines. That there are complex elements entering into the successful working out of such a plan one must admit. A school giving credit for work it does not seem may put a premium upon quantity rather than quality. The teacher who asks her little pupils to wash the home dishes according to school methods may encounter adverse comment from certain parents who are quick to resent outside management. Nevertheless, home practice in accordance with school theory is the ideal of any cooperative education in the mechanics of housekeeping. Therefore some scheme must be worked out whereby the girls will practice at home, and, having learned to do by doing, will continue to do in the families where their doing will be a help. Let us consider for a moment the present condition of the school credit for homework idea. Schemes are being worked out in various places, under one or the other of the following plans. Plan I often known as the Massachusetts plan. Each pupil, with the advice of his teacher and the consent of his parents, Select some one definite piece of work to do at home regularly, under direction of the school and with some study at school of the practical problems involved. School credit depends upon approval by the teacher on the occasion of a visit of inspection to the home. Plan I.I. sometimes called the Oregon Plan. This is more directly concerned with the cultivation of a helpful spirit than with perfect technique or broad knowledge. No attempt is made to correlate home and school work. Credit is given merely for the fact that the dishes were washed the table set, or the baby bathed, the fact being properly certified by the parent. Whether the work was acceptably done or not rests entirely with the parent. In the carrying out of the latter plan blanks are usually issued to be filled out and handed in once a week or once a month. Each task carries a certain value in school credit. That either of these plans possesses certain weaknesses doubtless even their makers would admit, but they are at least opening wedges. 
a plan might be worked out whereby little girls are taught one household task at a time, through their play housekeeping, after which credit may be given for satisfactory performance of the task at home. Later another household duty may be taught, and put into practice, with credit, at home, thus building up a body of known duties for which the little house helper has been duly trained. For its highest efficiency such a plan would require more than consent on the part of mothers. Its success would depend upon cooperative leadership and its value upon the acceptance, for school credit, of only that work done in conformity with school ideals. But at all events, whether school credit be given or not, the stimulus of interest in home tasks may be given strength by the teacher's wise suggestion, and thoughtful consideration of the matter in teachers' and mothers' meetings will ensure cooperation of the most helpful sort. The tactful teacher will find ways to suggest to mothers that children be held up at home to the ideals of efficiency she has been at pains to put before them at school. The suggestion has been recently made by several thoughtful educators that the noon hour, in schools where children do not go home for dinner, be made use of for the simplest of cooking lessons. The children who at seven are quite content to play how soon pass into the stage where they wish to see results from their work. They want to make things, real things that they or someone can use. Children of 9 or 10 can learn to cook cereals and eggs in various ways, to make cocoa, and to prepare other simple dishes. Their pride and delight in these accomplishments are intense. These activities are equally sweet to the small rural school and to the consolidated schools which are happily taking the place of the one-room buildings. In both, the teacher may find the lunch hour real educational force if it is used aright. If the teacher allows and guides these efforts in the schoolroom, She must keep in mind her ideal of efficiency, accurate measurements, logical processes, elimination of awkward and unnecessary movements, care in following directions, neatness, and precision are the real lessons to be learned. Illustration, photograph by Brown Bros. A school garden. The possibilities for good through school garden work are numberless. School gardens are perhaps already too familiar to require more than a word. Their possibilities for good are numberless. In them many children get their first insight into the joys of making things grow and are led by this joy to undertake the care of the home garden and to beautify the home surroundings as they had never thought of doing before. School garden work leads to beautifying the school grounds, with resulting pride and interest in the school. Accompanying the activities we have suggested, teachers will find a wide field in attractive stories of helpful cooperative home life. Extracts from many of Miss Alcock's stories. The Crackett's Christmas Dinner from Dickens' Christmas Carol, and many other delightful glimpses of home life can be read, or, better, dramatized, with little effort and with good results. It may seem that the homemaking training here suggested for younger children is too desultory, too slight, in fact, to affect the situation much. But let us consider, homemaking is an art, coming more and more to be based on a foundation of science, for it is undoubtedly true that, While the pessimists are telling us that the home is doomed, we who are optimists see coming toward us a great wave of homemaking knowledge which if seized upon will put the homemaker's art upon a surer foundation than it has ever been. The elements of housekeeping are the ABC of homemaking. We shall do well to teach them early, incidentally, and with no undue exaggeration of their place in the scheme of living. We simply familiarize the girl, by long and quiet contact, with the tools of the homemaker for future scientific use, just as we teach the multiplication facts for later use in the science of mathematics. A definite list of the simple homemaking tasks suitable for little girls to undertake may not be out of place here. 1. 
Setting the table. A card list of table necessities is full. Such a list may be given each little girl when she undertakes home practice work. 2. Clearing the table. 3. Washing the dishes. 4. Sweeping the kitchen. Sweeping the piazza. 5. Dusting. 6. Making beds and caring for bedrooms. 7. Arranging her own bureau drawers and closets. 8. Simple cooking. 9. Hemming towels and table linen. 10. Ironing handkerchiefs and napkins. As the child grows older, methods of teaching grow increasingly direct. Even here we shall perhaps not talk a great deal about preparing for homemaking, but we shall see that the tools grow increasingly familiar, and that ideals once taught are retained and added to. We shall see that our science, our mathematics, our art, all contribute to the acquirement of homemaking knowledge. We shall give a practical turn to these more or less abstract subjects. Sewing and cooking classes are by this time a recognized part of grammar school courses in many city schools. That they are not so firmly entrenched in the country schools is due usually to difficulties in the way of securing equipment and to the already crowded condition of the school program. The ideal remedy is the substitution of the consolidated school with its domestic science room and its specially trained teacher for the scattered one-room buildings. Wherever the consolidated school has come, it has been enthusiastically received and supported. No one wishes to go back to the old way. But in many localities the consolidated school has not come and cannot be immediately looked for, and in these places the need of the homemaking work is just as great. The teacher must find the way to give these girls what they need, if no other way presents itself. The teacher will do well to ask the help of the mothers of the neighborhood. Perhaps one who is an expert needlewoman will give an hour or two a week in the school or at her own home to carrying out the sewing course which the teacher cannot crowd into her own already overcrowded program. Perhaps another will do the same for the cooking, making her own kitchen for one afternoon a week in annex of the school. It is important, however, when such arrangements are made that they be recognized as school work, and if possible the courses followed should be planned and supervised by the regular teacher of the school. Thus only can they be held to standardized accomplishment. The inadequacy of the one portion method of teaching girls to cook has aroused serious thought, and remedies of various sorts have been applied. You know, perhaps, the story of the Chicago cooking school student who had to make seven omelets in succession at home last night because one egg would not make enough omelet for the family. The first remedy tried was cooking for the school lunchroom. This was, however, usually going from one extreme to the other, since the lunchroom is as a rule maintained only in large schools. Institutional cooking, someone calls it, instead of one egg cooking, it became 100 egg cooking and the difficulty of the average student in adapting school methods to family use was not by any means at an end. The Central High School of Newark, New Jersey, has solved its problem by putting its girls to work, not at the task of providing the sandwiches, soups, and other luncheon dishes for its large lunch room, but at providing family dinners at 25 cents a plate for the faculty of the school. Other schools follow similar plans. The Grammar School Girls of Leminster, Massachusetts, serve luncheon to a limited number every day at their domestic science house. Here the girls do the marketing, cook and serve the meal, and keep the various rooms of the house in order. In Montclair, New Jersey, work of the same sort is done. In each of these cases the cooking is done as it would have to be in the home, not for one person, nor for hundreds, but for approximately a family-sized group. Sewing courses also grow more and more practical. 
In some schools the girls make their own graduating dresses as a final test of their ability. Courses are definite, and girls completing them will have definite knowledge of everyday processes of hand sewing. The schools which add to their hand sewing courses well-planned practice in the use of the sewing machine are further adding to the accomplishment of their girls. Those which go farther still and teach garment planning and making may consider their sewing courses fairly complete. Illustration, Teachers lunch and cooked and served by pupils at the Clinton Kelly School, Portland, Oregon. Other schools have adopted similar plans for teaching girls how to cook. The formation of ideals must go hand in hand with practice in manual processes. The girl must learn to know good work when she sees it. To know a properly constructed garment from one carelessly put together and to value good work and construction. Time was when domestic science meant sewing and cooking, and these alone, that time, however, is past. The care of a house is practically taught in many schools throughout the country by the maintenance of a model apartment in or near the school building. In public school number 7, New York City, grammar school girls, many of whom are of foreign parentage and tradition, are thus introduced to the American ideal of living. The school is thus establishing standards of equipment of food, of service, of comfortable living, that tend to Americanize quite as much as the establishment of standards of speech, of business methods, or of civic duties. The work done in this school is typical of that prevailing in hundreds of towns and cities. The question arises, how much of her housekeeping training should a girl receive before entering upon her high school course? After careful consideration it seems wise to urge that the greater part of the practical household work be taught during the period from 11 to 14. This does not imply that homemaking training should cease at 14, but rather that after that age attention shall be centered upon the more difficult aspects of the subject upon household economics rather than the skillful doing of household tasks. In view, however, of the fact that the majority of girls never reach the high school, every bit of household science which they can grasp should be given them in the elementary school. Knowing how to do is only part of the housekeeper's work. Knowing what and when to do is quite as important. Elementary study of food values is quite as comprehensible as elementary algebra. Home sanitation and decoration are no harder to understand than commercial geography. The principles of infant feeding and care may be grasped by any girl who can successfully study civil government or grammar. Shall we then crowd out commercial geography or government or grammar to make room for these homemaking studies? Not necessarily. Although, if it came to a choice, Much might be said for the practical studies in learning to live. Fortunately it need not come to a choice. There is room for both. We must, however, learn to adapt existing courses to the requirements of girls. Illustration, courtesy of L.A. Alderman a model school home where all the practical details of housekeeping are taught there is arithmetic. For instance, most of us have already learned to skip judiciously the pages in the textbook which deal with compound proportion, averaging payments partial payments, and cube root. Now we must learn to insert the keeping of household accounts, the study of apportioning incomes, the scientific spending of a dollar in food or clothing value, the relative advantage of cash or credit systems of paying the running expenses of a home, the dangers of the easy payment plan, the cost of running an automobile, comparison with the upkeep of a horse and wagon, comparison of the two from the point of view of their fullness to a family, mortgaging homes, what it means and what it costs to borrow, when borrowing is justified, the accumulation of interest in a savings account, the comparative financial advantage of renting and owning a home, the cost of building houses of various sorts, the cost of securing, under varying conditions, 
a water supply in the country home, and other locally important problems. We already have applied science in our courses, and we are making a strenuous effort to apply arithmetic, but we have not usually tried to apply it to the education of the prospective homemaker. Take the one question of the installment plan. Where, if not in the public school, can we fight the menace offered to the inexperienced young people of the land by this method of doing business? And where in the public school if not in the arithmetic class? Consider the possibility of lives spent in paying for shoes and hats already worn out. Of furniture double-priced because payment is to be on the easy plan. Of families always in debt. With wages mortgaged for months in advance. The pure science of mathematics will be of little avail in fighting this possibility. But, applied arithmetic can be a most effective weapon. In our geography classes we may find time for the study of food and clothing products. Of their sources, their comparative fullness and their cost. We may learn whether it is best to buy American-made macaroni or the imported variety, whether French silks and gloves are superior to those made in America, what, shoddy, island what we may expect from it if we buy it, how much it is worth in comparison with long wool fabrics, how to know whether shoddy is being offered us when we buy. Countless other matters concerning the markets and products of the world will repay the same sort of treatment. Food questions are opened up by study of our meat, vegetable, and fruit supply. Every town may make this a personal and immediate problem. From whom did Mr. Blank, the local grocer, obtain his canned tomatoes? It is sometimes possible to follow up those canned tomatoes to their source. In one investigation of this sort they were found to have passed through six hands. The arithmetic class may pass upon the question of profits and comparative cost between this and the producer-to-consumer method. The artwork of the schools may also contribute generously to the body of homemaking knowledge. For the average girl the designing and making of Christmas cards and book covers, or even the prolonged study of great paintings, is a less productive use of time than the designing of cushion covers, curtains, bureau scarves, or candle shades. In a certain town in New England considerable effort was expended in bringing about the introduction of artwork in the schools a few years ago. A normal school art graduate took charge of the work. It has now been abandoned because the children took so little interest, and really, if you knew the conditions, you could not blame them they studied art and copied art and tried to cultivate an artistic sense in ways as remote from their daily lives as could apparently be contrived, and the pity of it all is that here were girls whose homes, whose personal dress, were crying out for the application of art, whose artistic sense was growing and failing to grow according as their individual conditions would allow, and the public school has passed its opportunity by. Art, as applied to school work, is divided usually into appreciative and creative work. We place before children the best in picture and sculpture and music. Why do we not teach them also the foundation principles of good taste in matters less remote from the lives of many of them? Why not teach the girls something of artistic color combination? Why not apply the test of art to the lines of woman's attire? Why not study the contour of heads and styles of hairdressing? Happily, in these days, these things also are being done. We have manual arts, rooms and teachers by whose aid girls are taught to use the principles of design they study in their everyday planning of everyday things. A visitor to the Central School of Auburn, Washington, reports interesting work going on in such a room. On the blackboard was written, the general aim of design work order and beauty. The three principles governing design are, balance harmony rhythm, balance, opposition of equal forms, rhythm, movement in direction joint action motion, harmony, similarity. 
in the room were girls doing various sorts of work coloring designs on fabrics for curtains and pillow covers, making original designs for crocheted lace, hemstitching draperies, preparing color material for a primary room, while on a table in the center of the room were many finished articles, made by the girls and carrying out their principles of design, not one of which, says the visitor, but would serve a full purpose in home or office, house building, interior decorating, and furnishing are all worthy of serious attention in the art course. Simplicity, harmony, and suitability may well be taught as the principles of good taste. Girls must learn these principles somewhere to make the most of their homes by and by. And again the public school, and probably the elementary school, must do the work. Physiology and hygiene are already contributing to the knowledge which makes for human betterment, but they also can be made to contribute much more than they have sometimes done. The physiology of infancy must be widely and insistently taught. With proper education she the young mother would know the meaning of the words food and sleep, she would know something of their overwhelming importance upon the future being and career of her child, who in his turn is to be one of the world's citizens with full capacity for good or evil. Knowing what were normal functions, she would be able to recognize and guard against deviations from them. No day would pass in which she would not find opportunity to exercise self-restraint, keen observation and sensible knowledge in furthering the normal and healthful evolution of her child. The little mother classes in settlement houses, in community social centers, and in some public schools are doing excellent work in beginning this knowledge of infancy. No elementary school can really afford to miss the opportunity such work holds out. Have we any right to let a girl approach the care of her child with less than